Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome, everybody, to Kelly Dry and Warren's latest podcast. I'm Steve Augustino, a partner in the communications group. My topic today is the FCC's Enforcement Bureau. I'm going to give a report card on the Bureau over the last year. The FCC's Enforcement Bureau was created in 1999. It was created to serve two functions. First, to consolidate enforcement functions that are performed by the FCC, and second, to bring consistency and fairness across all subject matters under FCC jurisdiction. In March of 2014, FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler appointed a new chief of the Enforcement Bureau, Travis LeBlanc. LeBlanc was different in many ways from prior Enforcement Bureau chiefs. First, he came from outside the communications space. He was not a communications attorney, did not have experience in communications prior to taking his job. Instead, he came from a prosecutorial background. He had experience in state attorney general's offices as a prosecutor and an investigator. He was a former chief deputy to California's attorney general, Kamala Harris. LeBlanc came armed with an agenda to remake the enforcement function of the FCC and a mandate from Chairman Wheeler, who believed that the FCC was not credible enough as a consumer protection agency. This quote from LeBlanc encapsulates his approach to enforcement. He said uh, in a statement about, about six months ago now, Smart enforcement means focusing our scarce prosecutorial resources on the most important cases, those that involve the most egregious violations, cause the greatest harm, or affect the largest number of consumers today, end quote. And that really has been what Travis LeBanc has been focusing on, big cases, big headlines, significant actions. If anything, I would say the key feature of the Enforcement Bureau under Travis LeBanc has been that it became significantly more inflexible, significantly more likely to impose penalties, and significantly more likely to apply broad principles rather than specific rules. Now, this created a number of challenges for the industry and for practitioners like myself who deal regularly with the Enforcement Bureau. Uh, We had to deal with an Enforcement Bureau staff that was acting in many, many areas without precedent, acting in areas that had traditionally not had significant amount of enforcement. And we were dealing with new approaches and new valuations of cases. And one thing to keep in mind here is that, at least with respect to Title II services, the FCC has several significant limitations on its enforcement power. First of all, it has to bring actions within one year. It has a statute of limitations of one year. That makes it very, very difficult for it to investigate cases and to move quickly enough. Secondly, it has limitations on the amount of a penalty it can impose. It has a statutory limitation of $160,000 per violation or $1.5 million for a continuing violation. So in order to remake the Enforcement Bureau the way that Travis LeBlanc wanted to do, the Bureau started looking more at more violations, broader types of violations, 
was taking new approaches and new theories as to what constituted a violation and how many violations there were. What we saw were five characteristics of a Travis LeBanc Enforcement Bureau, and these have continued in the last year. Number one, it's a progressively more active bureau. Number two, it has a very distinct prosecutorial focus. They are not simply investigating, they are investigating to build a case and bring something forward. Number three, there have been a lot of large-scale actions and their focus on large-scale actions. Number four, they have imposed detailed compliance plan obligations when you settle cases. And number five, there's been a new focus on admissions and civil penalties. So that was Travis LeBlanc and the Enforcement Bureau as of spring of 2015. What has happened in the past year is you've seen, in some ways, a continuation of these characteristics. The Bureau has continued to be active and has continued to issue very large-scale actions. Some of the most notable ones in the last year have been an AT&T case for its data throttling of its wireless services. Um, That's a $100 million proposed forfeiture. There's a $35 million fine against the Chinese manufacturer of signal jamming equipment. There have been a half dozen cases involving blocking of Wi-Fi services by hospitality industry members. There's been a $51 million proposed fine against a lifeline provider, a $30 million fine against a company for slamming and cramming, a series of other fines of about $10 million for other cramming cases. So we continue to see these big cases, large numbers are dominating the Bureau. We also continue to see in the past year principle-based, not rule-based enforcement. And what by that, what I mean is this. Rather than focusing on the specific rules that have been adopted by the commission and looking at whether there are violations of those rules, the FCC has focused on broader principles. And more often than not, it's using Section 201B of the Communications Act to address practices that it considers unjust or unreasonable. Examples of that include the AT&T, the Open Internet case, which was based as much on 201B as it was on the transparency part of the Open Internet rules. Yortel and Terracom, a case involving data privacy that was based upon Section 222A obligations for handling proprietary information, but also on 201B. In addition, in the past year, he has, uh, in a case that I'll talk about a little bit more in, the, in just a few minutes, he has issued fines in prepaid card cases and dealing with marketing of the prepaid card services, where the entire basis of that is Section 201B, unjust and unreasonable practice. In addition, Wi-Fi blocking, as I reference, is another area where we see them acting on principles rather than specific rules. With respect to compliance plans, a compliance plan has now become a standard feature of an FCC settlement. So if you have an investigation and you settle that investigation, companies should be expecting at this point that they're going to have to agree to compliance plans uh, that will last for two or three years. They have some features that are fairly general, like that you'll employ a compliance officer, you'll create a compliance manual, you'll conduct compliance training. 
But what I've seen in the past year has been a focus on more detailed compliance plan obligations, specific statements that the company will take these actions and on a regular basis. Once a year, we'll review certain types of services, for example. Or in a recent settlement involving an E-rate case, the applicant there agreed to appoint several different compliance monitors. And what I thought was significant about that case was that the applicant would provide the FCC with advance notice as to who the individuals would be presumably giving the FCC a chance to object to those. Now, there was not an explicit provision for approval, but there was a, an advance notice. So it was a signal, again, that the FCC is getting more into the weeds, much more detailed and more active in following the, um, the enforcement of these particular violations. With respect to admissions and civil penalties, that was the probably the most controversial thing that Travis LeBlanc had tried to institute, and he has largely been successful. Virtually every settlement in the past year has had civil penalty language. That is, they are no longer referred to as voluntary payments. It is a payment of a civil penalty. On admissions, most I would say most of the cases at this point have admissions in them. So he's been largely successful, but we are continuing to see a few cracks in that. So I think there's some opening here. Most recently, we have seen in the last, since November, December of last year, I have seen three major cases that do not include a admission of liability language involving things such as um, tracking super cookies, uh, for example. The E-rate case that I talked about before involving the New York City Department of Education did not have admissions of liability. Cox Communications had a CPNI settlement that did not have an admission of liability. So we're seeing, I would say, that Travis has largely achieved the agenda he had set out, has made a number of changes, and we've seen a, a significant turn in what the Enforcement Bureau does. Now, this set the stage for the next development I want to discuss, the backlash against LeBlanc's enforcement approach. This backlash came as a little bit of a surprise, as much for where the criticism emanated from as for its content. Over the past year, after LeBlanc put in all of these changes, we started to see pushback coming from a number of areas most notably coming from Commissioner O'Reilly. He has really, I would say, emerged as the primary enforcement critic on the FCC, really looking at process and digging in many, many cases on this. I have a number of statements I'll walk you through on this. But it started in June of 2015 when Commissioner O'Reilly gave a speech to a communications bar lunch. Now, these are traditional events. They always have a commissioner at this particular event, and usually it's a chance to highlight some high-level area of interest, frequently does not make any headlines. Uh, Commissioner O'Reilly's speech, though, was radically different from that. He did make headlines. He did lay out his basic criticism of the FCC under its Enforcement Bureau Chief, uh, Travis LeBanc. And basically what he said was this. Here's a quote from him. The commission seems more intent on obtaining newspaper headlines, trumpeting accusations, and eye-popping fines. 
In other words, self-aggrandizing fanfare is a major objective and often appears to be more important than case foundation, correcting the violation, or establishing a reasonable deterrent, end quote. That's a very, very harsh words to come from a commissioner about the FCC's enforcement actions. And he has, in case after case, laid down concerns that he has with the FCC's actions. A couple of examples of that in the Wi-Fi blocking case involving one entity, MC Dean, he dissented from that, expressing concern that once again, the FCC was setting complex regulatory policy by enforcement adjudication. That's not the way it should be done. In his view, it should be done through rules and rulemaking. In an AT&T case involving what is a fairly routine circumstance, unfortunately, of companies that proceed with a transaction in some form and didn't get the proper authorizations for that. Typically, what happens in that kind of case is you go back, you correct that violation, company pays a small fine and moves on. The AT&T fine in this instance was significant. It was close to $600,000. That cost Commissioner O'Reilly to object to it in a statement that concurred in part and dissented in part to what was an otherwise very routine case, he expressed concern about the credibility of the FCC's enforcement process. He said they must have faith in the calculations of the forfeiture amounts, that they're fair, that they're transparent, that they're consistent. And he didn't find consistency in that particular case. He has also expressed concerns in Other cases of companies that have made a claim of an inability to pay, under the statute, the FCC has an obligation to consider the company's ability to pay. Twice, Commissioner O'Reilly has dissented from orders, feeling that the commission has not seriously considered the ability to pay standard. And then he saved a lot of his vitriol for the open internet case, the AT&T data throttling case. In that particular case, he also dissented, and he expressed concern that licensees don't have faith in the process that the government is following here. He said they have to have trust that the government is working in a sound and just manner instead of, quote, vilifying them or demanding that they incriminate themselves, end quote. Again, he has led the charge here. These are very strong words to hear from a commissioner about the FCC enforcement. What has that led to? It's led to a number of different things starting in the fall of 2015. First, on the Senate side of Capitol Hill, three Republicans on the Senate Commerce Committee sent a letter over to the FCC expressing concern that its actions have simply sought headlines, that they've put in very high numbers, and the commission has not actually collected the forfeitures that it has proposed or imposed. Now, that led to a little bit of pushback from the FCC. Travis LeBlanc issued a blog post on the FCC's blog in which he asserted that they collect 88% of the fines, although the backup for that figure has not been released. And I have myself spent a number of times trying to find that and not actually found the 88% number. I think that's a little bit high. I'm not sure exactly how everything is calculated and counted in that. But we're seeing that pushback from the Senate side. On the House side, members of the Subcommittee on Communications and Technology 
issued a letter asking the Government Accountability Office to conduct an investigation of the FCC's enforcement process and its enforcement activities. We presume that that investigation has started. Uh, We have not seen any public evidence of it. We certainly haven't seen a report yet. But you have, both on the Senate side and then the House side, you have pushback from members of Capitol Hill expressing concern about the FCC's enforcement activities. I think we will see that continue over the next few months as well. We've seen it in some investigations, some hearings already, but I think we'll see more. Now, where else are we going to see this pushback? And this is the, the one of the most significant things coming out of all of this. In the near future, I think we are going to see litigation of the FCC's enforcement activities. Section 504 of the Communications Act has always had a provision, which is a little bit unusual, a party that wishes to challenge a forfeiture One option that party has under Section 504 is simply to refuse to pay the forfeiture. What happens in that circumstance is that then the U.S. government has to bring a civil suit in the district where that entity has its headquarters. And and this is the key provision. The the suit is a trial de novo. That is, there's not supposed to be any deference to the FCC on that. The FCC has to prove the violation again, would have to prove the amount of the forfeiture, would have to prove any damages or uh, justify its theories of liability. Now, in the 15 years between 2000 and 2015, there have been about 120 of these cases overall, The vast majority of those have been against pirate radio operators, and there's been no evidence that there's been any significant litigation in that. There were only four cases involving common carriers and Title II-type obligations. All of those cases had involved a company that was bankrupt or defunct, and so there was also no evidence of litigation in those particular cases. Now, I think we're going to see this change. This potentially is going to change because one of the things, one of the orders the FCC has issued in October of 2015, it proceeded forward and issued fines of $5 million apiece against six companies that offer prepaid calling cards to the public. And in each of those six cases, the FCC concluded that the company's advertisement was misleading to consumers. It concluded that based upon a reading of the posters and the advertisements. It was not based upon any consumer complaints. It was not based upon any surveys or any other evidence of actual misrepresentation or misunderstanding of the posters and the statements that are included on the posters. Instead, it was the FCC reviewing those posters and determining that under Section 201B, it felt that those were unclear. So those have proceeded to forfeiture now. The companies in all six cases, I believe, have refused to pay the forfeiture. So the next step is for the FCC to move forward and collect those in actions. It appears that those actions have started within the last month or so, and that um, they are very likely to be litigated as we move forward, possibly in multiple districts here. So we may have some competing cases. So watch for that in the future. But here's what we're seeing now. I think the Enforcement Bureau and the actions of the Enforcement Bureau in this last year is a big reason why process reform has gained focus with Republicans on Capitol Hill. 
We see this pushback on enforcement. It also is overflowing into the rulemaking proceedings as well. Congressional oversight is going to continue in these next few months, these last months before the election here and the normal turnover that happens at the agency. In addition, we're poised because of these prepaid card cases to finally see meaningful review of FCC enforcement actions in the courts. We will finally see situations where interpretations from the commission about willfulness, about the scope of Section 201, about what is a violation, the numbers of violations, whether there is a continuing violation. All of these issues have been issues that have been prevalent in enforcement cases over the years, but you're always in front of the FCC. You're never in front of a court. Now we're finally going to have at least some of those in front of a court, so watch out for that. In the end, it's kind of odd or somewhat ironic here, but it is quite possible that Travis LeBlanc's legacy in creating a tougher, stricter enforcement bureau may ultimately be a weakening of the FCC's enforcement power, either through legislative pushback or through these litigation rulings on the FCC's powers. We will see. That is what I would suggest we should look for in the year ahead. And when I do this podcast next year and talk about the next year in FCC enforcement, we will see if either of those areas have caused any significant changes in FCC enforcement. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you again uh, sometime soon. Bye. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.